No walk-up music? Come on. Is this a, is this a funeral or what are, we, what are we doing here? You don't realize how much you miss something until you don't have it. All right. Hey, welcome everybody. Good morning. Glad that you guys are here. Happy New Year for those that I haven't seen in a whole year now. Kayla? Kayla? Yeah. It's a Kayla joke. Who's ready to, Pastor Gabe got me this for Christmas. Who's ready to binge Jesus? That's a, that's a, yes, we are. Hallelujah or something. Come on. All right. That's okay. It's, we're, 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 it's going to be a slow burn here. We're going to get, we're going to get going today. Um, we're in a new series, the first series of 2024. It's going to be, I think, that you're going to love it. I hope that you're going to love it. My prayer is that you're going to love it. After a couple years, um, literally it's been a couple years since we've been in a New Testament book. We've been in Mark, we've been in James, we've been in Ephesians, we've done, of course, we've done Easter and, and Advent, our Christmas series, things like that. It is now time to take a step back into our roots, back into a study of some Old Testament books, this is actually, um, we're going to take a dive into the deep end of the pool. Who's with me? Okay. We're going to do that. This is, these are actually the, the final books of history that are recorded in the Hebrew Bible. Another name for the Hebrew Bible is the Old Testament, right? This isn't, this isn't something secret. The books we're going into is Ezra and Nehemiah. Who has studied Ezra and Nehemiah before? Okay, a couple of you, a few of you, ladies in the, in the ladies' Bible study, Ezra and Nehemiah, okay, I can tell by the reception here, by the reaction, that you'll be like, why are we going into these books? Is this going to be another year like 2020 when we studied Job for an entire year? <laughs> Some of you, and whoever it is that said, yeah, you might have a problem if you're that excited about Job, but... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, this is where it's my job to impart to you. I'm gonna, I was going to use the word sell, but impart to you the importance of studying the Old Testament, of staying firmly rooted in books like this. And I was going to, I've got my notes all carefully laid out, but I just feel like the Holy Spirit wanted me to jump ahead. So I'm going to jump ahead way deep into my notes and share with you just the way that I wanted to put the importance of specifically these two books. These two books are amazing, and I'll talk about more in depth in them in just a little bit, but I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you're fighting desperately to hold on to a blessing that you feel God has given you? A place that he has put you, a person he has put you with, a situation he's put you in. And you were sure in the beginning that God put you there and he wanted you there and you were right. But all of a sudden, it's not as easy as it should be. It's a struggle, it's a fight to hang on to that blessing that you were so sure in the beginning that God gave to you. And yet it's not as easy as it should be. That could be your marriage. That could be a new job. Children, 
a financial situation that you're in, physical healing, emotional peace, maybe it's your very salvation in Jesus Christ. That at the beginning, you're like, this is an incredible blessing. Thank you, Lord. I'm right where I need to be. And all of a sudden, it is a struggle every day to hang on to it. And you find yourself questioning, did I get it wrong? Did I hear it wrong? Am I not where I'm supposed to be? What is wrong that I'm having to fight for this every day? If you've ever asked that question or anything like it, then the title of the series is going to make sense to you, The Battle for the Blessing. It doesn't mean we have to fight to get the blessing. It means we have to fight to keep it. It means for every blessing that you get in life, there's somebody who's going to want to come in and steal it away from you, convince you to give it up, belittle the value of it, or a hundred other ways that they come after it. That's what we're going to talk about in this series. Okay, so spoiler alert, that's where we're going with this. But I want to go back, and as Pastor Gabe said, foundational. She called this a foundational message. Anytime you go into a study like this, it is really, really important that we understand why we're doing what we do. If you're going to be passionate and excited and invested in something, our first question is, why? We all have plenty of things to be invested and passionate and excited about in our lives. At least I hope we do. Maybe, the, maybe other than excitement, a better word is it takes up your mental energy. Why should I make some space in my life to study this and to be excited about this? Let me, let me get into some of the reasons, okay? The importance of studying not only Old Testament scripture, but these books specifically. Are you with me so far? All right, here we go. Here we go. If you're out there online, pay attention to this. It's going to set the tone for the whole series. Let's go back to, first of all, what Paul told the elders in Ephesus. He's traveling around. Paul, the apostle, is traveling around the whole known world at that time, and he is sharing Jesus, and he is evangelizing, and he is, he is, is spreading the gospel everywhere that he goes in a very powerful way. And yet, on the way back to Jerusalem, in one of his journeys, he's been on the road for a long time, and he's heading back, and he stops by the outskirts of this town called Ephesus, and he asks the elders, sends, sends a runner, and gets the elders of the town to come out to meet him. He doesn't want to go into town, but he wants to impart a message to him. And this is what he says. This is from Acts. Acts 20, verses 26 and 27. It says, therefore, I testify you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all people, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. All right, now we're going to look at that a little bit closer. Leave that up there for just a second. Some translations, in fact, many translations say declare to you the whole counsel of God. They use that word counsel. You may be more familiar with that. But it all goes back to this Greek word the Greek word is boule, and the definition of that is God's wisdom and decrees guaranteeing an outcome. In Paul's mind, when he says the whole purpose of God or the whole counsel of God, what he's talking about 
is the Hebrew Scriptures. What we know as the New Testament, what's in most of our Bible, many Bibles don't even have Old Testament Scripture in them. They start right with the New Testament. But when Paul says things like that, he's talking about Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. That's what he's talking about, the whole counsel of God. And his desire is that the people that he's talking to would strive to be like, there's this group of people called the Bereans. And he talks about them in Acts 17, a little bit earlier. This is what he says about the Bereans, Acts 17, 11, 12. Now these people were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a significant number of prominent Greek women and men. He's saying these people were noble because they had a hunger for the word, and not just, I just want to voraciously read it. I want to read it and compare it to what I've been taught, to what I've been told, to what I've heard, and maybe even just to what my heart thinks, and see what's true. I want to discern the truth. And through that pursuit, many people came to know Christ. That's a noble pursuit. If we go back then to the Old Testament, we'd talk about the Psalms. Okay, the Psalms were written by several different authors. There was King David, there was Solomon, uh, there was Moses, maybe even some of them written by Ezra, the very person we're going to study here, um, and a collection of, of a few different people, all heavy hitters when you talk about dispensers of wisdom. There is serious wisdom to be found in the Psalms. And if you read Psalms, it starts out chapter 1, verse 1, verse 1 through 3 actually, but the very beginning of it says this, blessed, this is King David saying this, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. That's how this entire great collection of wisdom, known as the Psalms, starts out. Meditate on this, because if you do, you're going to prosper in whatever you do. Paul laid out for Timothy this very serious reason to be connected to Scripture. Paul said it like this. This is his second letter to Timothy. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. I'll read it for you. It's a little bit long, but I'll read it for you. And I want you to listen to it, especially at the end. But evil people and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and have become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. All right, did you catch the key phrase in there? Maybe it did. I'll read it. Actually, I'll put it on screen. 2 Timothy 3.15. It's, it's right smack in the middle of what I just read to you. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, 
which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Sacred writings, what's he talking about? Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. That's what he's talking about. And did you catch the why? Why is it important to study those things? Because it gives you the wisdom that leads to salvation. Paul himself tells Timothy this. We study the sacred scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, because in them it leads to salvation in Christ Jesus. So many people want to discount Old Testament scripture because they go, ah, it's just about angry God. I'd rather read about happy Jesus. You laugh because it's true. Still not convinced though? How about this? How about this as a reason to study Old Testament scripture? Old Testament, by the way, is our word for it. It's the Hebrew Bible. That's what they knew it as. But it's what Jesus taught from. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all record Jesus teaching in the synagogues, reading from the scrolls. Those scrolls weren't Matthew. <laughs> Those scrolls weren't, you know, 1 Corinthians. It was what we call, again, the Old Testament. It's full of promises that Jesus came to fulfill. It is full of them. Luke 24, 44. Jesus says, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. These are the words of Jesus Christ that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Think about the, the, I won't go into the Hebrew version of it, but the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, you've got the law, you've got the prophets, and then, and then the Psalms is, is lumped in with what's called the writings, and they all have a Hebrew word for it, which I won't go into now. But those are the three main divisions. So basically, Jesus himself is saying everything, the entirety of what you know as the Holy Scriptures is about me. It's about me, and I came to fulfill it. All Scripture, old and new, point to Jesus. All of it. John 5.39 says, you examine the Scriptures because you think that in them you have, e you have eternal life. And it's those very scriptures that testify about me. Again, the words of Jesus. Every book in the Bible points to Jesus. It either points to him coming or it talks about him having, came, having come. It's our job to look for him in every book of the Bible, everywhere. And it's my job to help. One modern very popular, wildly popular preacher. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name him, and I certainly can't call him a scholar, but he's very popular. He said this about the Old Testament, about studying the Old Testament. He said, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument. Anybody agree with that? I hope not. He thinks that he can make a better case for Jesus than Jesus himself made for Jesus. He, he goes on to say this, I'm convinced for the sake of this generation 
and the next generation, we have to rethink our apologetic as Christians. And the less we depend on the Old Testament to prop up our New Testament faith, the better because of where we are in today's culture. Church, it's exactly in light of today's culture that I think that I have to disagree with all my heart everything that he just said. We can't understand the overwhelming grace of God or our desperate need for a Savior in Jesus Christ without understanding what came before. We can't. And without that understanding, it's nearly impossible to appreciate the depth of the gift that we've been given. It's almost impossible. And without that, you can easily be tempted to take your faith for granted or to trade it for something a little more comforting to our sensibilities. Without an understanding of how we got here, we will take it all for granted. See any parallels in today's culture? People trying to erase everything it took to get us to this place. All right. You may be saying, oh, okay, okay, pastor, I get it, I get it. The Old Testament is important, but why these books in particular and why now? Let me see if I can relay that to you. First of all, these two books were originally one book. When they were read in synagogue, back in the times of Jesus and even before, they were on one scroll. It was one book, and they were one book. For the, uh, they had two separate divisions but it was one scroll. Most scholars believe that they were both written by the same author. They were both written by Ezra. Now, Nehemiah, as you'll find when we get in there, is written in kind of a first-person language. Most believe, and I believe, that he was dictating that to Ezra, who was a trained scribe, to write that down. So most people believe that Ezra, by the way, also wrote Chronicles. And many people call these two books as a continuation of Chronicles. So really, we should study Chronicles also. Who's in? No. We're going to stay with these two. That's a lot to bite off. But chronologically, these two books cover the last series of events prior to what's called the 400 years of silence where no prophets really spoke. God didn't really speak through his people. There wasn't a lot going on in that 400 years other than just a, a, a passionate, fervent wait for this Messiah that we've been promised to show up. And when he shows up, he looks like a baby in a manger. Not at all what they had been hoping for. In the traditional Hebrew order, they are the last two books. And in these two books, what we see here is that despite their need for a serious course correction, I'll call it. I'll be generous and call it a course correction on everything that the people are doing. God shows his great mercy and his great faithfulness to the covenant that he made with Abraham that all nations would be blessed through them. These people have rebelled. They have turned to idolatry. They have, been, they have been conquered. They have been enslaved and taken away. 
They've been punished. They've repented and they've been restored. That should be the end. That's not how the book ends up. A lot of times these two books are taught, if, if it's been taught to you in church before, a lot of times it's used as like a, a leadership study. How to, how to lead a group of people into a common task. And it's got a lot of wonderful wisdom on that. But most likely, if you're going to write a book on how to lead people into a common task, how to get people united in a common goal, it's going to have a happy ending, right? Usually. Wouldn't be a bestseller if it didn't, probably. Spoiler alert, Ezra and Nehemiah pretty much end up with the people going, yeah, this is great, man, we've been set free. Okay, what's next? Taking that blessing for granted yet again. But there's so much that happens in between that is absolutely amazing. If you've ever studied these two books, it's incredible. Okay, I know it's a lot. I know, like, let's take a breath. Take a breath. And let's lighten it up just a little bit and introduce you to some of the characters that we're going to be talking about in this study. Let's look at it in the way of like heroes and villains, because we'll be hearing about these guys a lot in this study. So we want to set some groundwork, okay? So first of all, we'll go through the good guys. And there's some gray area here in all of them, but we'll call these, these good guys. First, there is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Their actual photo of Zerubbabel thousands of years ago directing construction. Good guy. Zerubbabel, by the way, his name literally means offspring of Babylon. That's what his name means. He was actually born in captivity in Babylon. He was born a slave, spent his life as a slave. He's actually a descendant of King David, a direct descendant of King David. He was later on appointed to governor of Judah, and he oversaw construction of the temple. That's who Zerubbabel is. Next, we're going to go to Ezra, the writer of these books. Again, actual photo. It's a little grainy because cameras weren't the greatest back then. His name means Jehovah Helps. He is a priestly descendant of Aaron. He was a scribe actually under a Persian king. Again, taken captive and put into service as a scribe under Persian king Artaxerxes, which we'll hear about more later. As I said again, the author of Chronicles and Ezra, the book that has his name on it, which is a dead giveaway, and Nehemiah. Now we'll go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. There's Nehemiah. Looks like a guy that can take charge, right? Nehemiah's name literally means Jehovah comforts. Jehovah, by the way, whenever you see that, that's the covenant name of God to the Hebrew people. He oversaw the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. Ezra was focused on the temple mostly. Nehemiah worked on the walls. He lived in exile nearly his whole life until he came to Jerusalem to work on the walls. He was actually the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, again, the Persian king. A cupbearer, just, I mean, it's your job just to hold the royal chalice and just follow him around. Whenever he's thirsty, here, I've got a drink for you. 
just a regular guy, but he was a bold prayer warrior. He was not afraid to ask for things. In fact, standing as a slave to the king of Persia, who could have him killed in just a second, the king of Persia says, why do you look so sad today? And he goes, because my people are enslaved and my, my city's in ruins. And that enough, he had built such a relationship with the king that the king said, you got to do something about that. Vast oversimplification of the story, but we'll talk more about that later. There are, along with these main characters, there's guest appearances by a guy named Sheshbazar. Try and say that. Sheshbazar, he's a prince of Judah. He was politically appointed uh, by King Cyrus to be the prince of Judah. Then there's Haggai. Anybody ever heard of Haggai before? He's a Hebrew prophet. He helps Zerubbabel to mobilize the Jewish community to build the temple. Major encourager. Then there's Zechariah, another Hebrew prophet. He is a cheerleader. He's an encourager. He's a cheerleader for the spiritual renewal in this restored city. Now we have a temple. Now we have walls. Let's do something with this, people. Then we go to the bad guys. Bad guys. I should have had it like, dun, dun, dun. The Assyrians. The Assyrians. Israel was conquered over and over and over and over again. First ones were the Assyrians. King Sargon II. Here he is. Get your King Sargon II action figure at Walmart. I think they're sold out. Conqueror of Samaria and the first to go in and destroy Jerusalem. The Babylonians, chief among them, King Nebuchadnezzar. There he is, looking very royal. He crushed a rebellion in Judah. Deported most, captured, deported is a kind word, but captured and removed them from their homes in Jerusalem and took them to Babylon. All of Jerusalem and most of Judah completely flattened and destroyed the temple. True, true bad guy, right? Now we go to the Persians. Persians, a series of Persians. First one, King Cyrus the Great. There is Cyrus the Great in a couple different, a couple different pictures there. King Cyrus the Great is an awesome, awesome story. We'll talk about it as we get through there. The prophet Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before this that a ruler names him by name and says, you are going to subdue nations. You are going to do all these things, but then you're also going to pay to rebuild Jerusalem. (laughs) Daniel is the one that gets in his face and tells him, this is who you are. The Bible says that. You want me to show you? Completely destroyed. Um, A lot of people call him, though, ultimately call him a benevolent dictator because he ends up releasing the Jews, letting them go back to Jerusalem, and even paying to rebuild the temple. So starts out as as a conquering destroyer of nations, 
God ends up turning his heart so that he ends up rebuilding the temple. Then we go from that King Artaxerxes, his, Cyrus's son, one of his sons. He stopped the rebuild that was in process when he started getting accusations, words, false words coming back that these people in Jerusalem, these, these Judahites, these Jews were, were evading paying their fair share of taxes. And so he says, oh, hold on, stop the construction. We're not doing anything more right now. Later on, he finds the truth, he's convinced, and he lets them restart the work, and even goes a step further, sends his personal cupbearer, this guy that he's got a great relationship with, Nehemiah, sends him back to Jerusalem, frees him, sends him back there with all of the authority to rebuild and restore the walls of the city. Then we have King Darius. King Darius, the third in the line of Persians we're going to talk about here, actually passed laws to protect the Jews and their rights to worship and funded the, the actual completion of the temple. Again, it was a long process. Uh, you think our construction government jobs take a long time to complete? This was a long time. This all takes place over the period of about 50 years, what we're going to be talking about here, give or take. But he actually funded that. We have guest appearances by this guy named Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Basically, just their claim to fame is they're mockers and troublemakers. That's, that's all they are. We never hear about them again. So here's a couple things to know. Those are the, those are the main characters just to kind of get a grasp on when you hear the names, and there's so many more. But here's some things you should know about this series. Number one, we're not going verse by verse, okay? Some of you are going, I've read it, so I'm glad we're not. We're still going to do uh, an exegetical study through it. We are still going to teach the expository way that we do. However, we're not going verse by verse, okay? If you want to know why, Read Ezra chapter 2 just in your spare time, and you'll go like, I am so glad we're not going verse by verse. It's just a, a list of names and where they came from. We're covering big ideas, main events, because I want you to get the picture. We're going to be jumping back and forth between Ezra and Nehemiah, also Kings and Jeremiah, and, and we're going to be jumping all over the place, even some in Daniel. <coughs> Excuse me. Think of this when we go back and forth as I was watching a lecture on this, and the guy called it hyperlinks. Whenever you read your Bible and it shows a little footnote of like, this is found in 1 Kings, or this cross-references to this or that, he called them hyperlinks. And I go like, that's great, because a lot of people are like, why would I follow, I'm reading the scripture, why do I care that it was found in 1 Kings? Think of it as a hyperlink. Anybody ever reading through a story and you go like, I wonder what that hyperlink is? And you find yourself on this huge rabbit trail that just goes everywhere, right? But oftentimes it gives you a more full picture of what was happening before or during or why this matters. Or sometimes it leads you to uh, a set of Teflon pans that you never knew you needed. <laughs> okay, we're not going there. But those, just think of it as a hyperlink when we go back and forth to all these different cross-references, giving us a fuller picture of what's happening here. Each section that we go through, it's telling a big story, but each section, I promise you, has 
an application for today. It has something that's relevant for us today. We look at, I was praying about which series to go into, and I was like, Lord, we are going into um, a political season. Not every season's a political season now, but more so than many in recent memory. There is so much division. There is so much going on that, that I feel really, honestly, threatens the very core of our nation. And the way it's set up and the system that was set up and was such a blessing from God. What do we do to contend for that? What do we do without being, without just going and, and, and rioting and, and being the opposite of who Christ wants us to be? How do we contend for the blessing that he has given us? And he said, why don't you look at the story of Ezra and Nehemiah? Contending for the blessing that God gave them. They had to fight for it. Even though much of it was just laid out to them in supernatural ways, they had to fight to keep it. So, fun fact, by the way, Ezra and Daniel, I should have put this in a quiz form. I still can. No, because I gave you the answer in the first two, letters, first two words. They're the only books in the Bible that are written primarily in Aramaic. So if you're a studier, and you know who you are, be sure when you're looking back at Ezra and parts of Daniel again, be sure that you know that in most, we'll say it's Hebrew, but it's, it's an Aramaic root because it was written originally in Aramaic. It's just, a, it's just a trivia question more than anything. So, conclusion, let's wrap this whole thing up. Once Ezra and Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem with supernatural blessing, and begin to rebuild it, the first thing they do is go, okay, we need to restore the law that has been ignored for so long. We need to restore the traditions of our people, which have gone completely by the wayside. And the cultural identity, the very identity, the core identity of our people, which has been diluted, which has been, has been mocked and made fun of and belittled, our very core identity, we need to restore that. And so they do. And then I picture him standing back just expecting this huge revival, this huge reawakening of like, yes, we've been doing it wrong for so long and we're so glad that you restored the walls and the temple and here we are back in our homeland and, and we can now worship God as freely as we want to. That's great. What's for lunch? After doing all that, they expect people to be so excited and their passion for him just didn't follow suit. But there's a lesson that we can learn in that too. We live in a culture that today especially that no longer places any kind of value in the law or traditions or cultural identity. In fact, all of those things are in a way that I never in my mind would have thought could happen, are being forgotten, destroyed, ignored, much like was happening back there. But as Christians, we can't just point to God's promises, his sovereignty, his great love for us, even his son, Jesus. We can't just point to that, including the redemption and salvation that Jesus offers to us. We can't just point to that and expect that that's going to be enough for people to go, you know, 
That's a great gift. I'm on board. Our culture is just not like that. The lure of sin and idolatry that is alive in this world is just too great for us to be passive cheerleaders. And we're going to find that it's not just today because that's the same thing that was happening thousands of years ago. We have to contend every day for the fruit of God's blessing to us. We have to because there are those who won't see the value until it's too late and it can easily be stolen. On the other hand, there are those who greatly see the value of God's blessing and want to do everything they can to make sure you don't accept it. In this series, again, we're going to see that Ezra and Nehemiah had God's favor. They had God's favor. They had prophetic promises from thousands of years before them. They had his supernatural provision, but they still had to fight tooth and nail to keep that fruit from just rotting on the vine. They still needed to convince the people that the God that set them free and restored them and provided for them was worth their time. Now, this is where I go back to what I started out the message with. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me put it this way. Have you ever been in a situation where you're fighting to hold on to a blessing that God has given you, you are sure of it, and you end up wondering if you missed something somehow or you did something wrong because it isn't as easy as it ought to be if it's a gift from God. Again, marriage, job, children, finances, physical healing, emotional peace, up to and including your salvation in Christ. Why is it so hard? For every blessing from God, there's someone who wants to ruin it. There's someone who wants to steal it. And if he can't keep you from asking for it to begin with, he'll make you question your worthiness to accept it. Or maybe even your, your worthiness to even ask for it to begin with. Or he'll cause you to be dissatisfied. Pastor Gabe's message from last week. Did anybody enjoy that message last week? Gosh, I did. But he'll cause you to be dissatisfied with the gift that you have been given. Or he'll cause you to doubt that it's real or that it can last. He'll talk you into ruining it yourself. Ruin it yourself before someone else does. He might just send someone to steal it. He might trick you into giving it up on your own. Or he might just make it a whole lot of work to hold on to. That agent of darkness that's going to do all those things and that pursuit of God's blessing that you have, that agent of darkness might come in a whole variety of shapes and sizes, but they all share a common source. They all share a common author. And I want to let you know that that guy has been defeated by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Once and for all. Amen. That deserves a more amen than just one. Come on. So don't give up. Don't give up. Contend for it and battle for the blessing that God has given you. Let's pray. Father God, I just, I pray that through this message you have used me to just ignite 
a fire and a desire for your people to seek more about your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your forever covenant with us and know that we have a part to play in this. That if we don't contend for your blessing, it won't stay in our hands for long. So Father, help us to see those things for what they are. Help us to see the enemy not as each other, but as the author of deceit. And let us gather together as a body to stand against those lies and to say, no, we will contend for this blessing. We will battle for this blessing that you have given us. Salvation is free. God's grace is free. But it costs a lot to hold on to. Father, we praise you. And we lift our lives up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, we're going to go into communion right now. The way we do communion here, you don't have to be a member. You don't have to have gone through any sort of thing. You just have to say, yes, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and we invite you to take communion with us now. We're going to have, we have three stations for it. Uh, On this side, on this side, we have wine uh, and bread and gluten-free crackers, and what we do is just dip the bread or the cracker in and and take it like that, and we'll serve you up here just two lines down the middle. If you'd prefer to serve yourself or prefer to to have juice, we have a self-serve station in the back. But let's move around. The worship team will be will be um, will be singing a song that will speak to your heart. I promise you. Let it do that as you are thankful for what gifts you have been given, and as you ask the Lord for the continued strength to contend for those gifts. And let's move around and take communion together now. Following that and following service, we'll have healing prayer. If you want prayer, gather up front right here. We also have prayer warriors in the back. If you just need prayer for anything right now, they'll meet you in the back during the communion time. Let's just take this time, focus our hearts, and thank Jesus for who he is. Amen? Thank you, guys.